Senator Dan Hageman represents the largest legislative district in the state of Missouri. He also was around before Republicans took over the Missouri General Assembly. Now the Cosby Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking to talk about representing his huge district and the issues before the Missouri Senate. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our studios in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us from our beautiful Jefferson City studios in Jefferson City, Missouri. Yeah, yes, it, almost in the dome. Almost in the dome. Um, the person that represents the largest legislative district in all the state we have as our special guest today. Dan Hageman. Pleasure hey. to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, you are the senator for the 12th Senatorial District. I want you to kind of give our listeners a sense of what counties uh, comprised your district. This could take like 10 minutes, but we'll, we'll, we'll have you uh, explain the, the boundaries yeah, of your and district. And by largest, we're, we're talking about physical area. Geographic area. Yes. You bet. All the county, all the senatorial districts are to be fairly equivalent on population-wise, but I have the opportunity to have uh, represent in the General Assembly 14 full counties and two-thirds of a uh, 15th county. So I have 15 counties in my senatorial district. It runs, uh, it's, it's what I call the great northwest part of the state. It runs from Nebraska and Kansas and Iowa all the way over to Kirksville uh, and then down into the Kansas City area in Clay County. Um, comprises of uh, towns such as Maryville, Bethany, uh, Trenton, Savannah, Smithville, Kearney, Cameron, um, Milan, Unionville, uh, Gallatin, so a number of different counties, a number of different communities, uh, but largely rural northwest Missouri. How many square miles? Oh, you got me there, but it is it is geographically the biggest uh uh, senatorial district in the state. Yeah, because it sounds like that it could be hundreds of square miles. And I just got to ask, how does somebody like effectively represent a district that large? I know it's. I know that some of the counties don't have a lot of people in them, but I would imagine for for both you and Senator Munzlinger, your you, the way you represent your area is probably different from say Senator. Jake Hummel, whose district is like three square miles. I, yeah. I, I know that's a weird question, but I'm actually really interested to hear your response to it. He probably has the opportunity to be able to walk his district, and I have to drive uh, hours to get to the end of my district in some of the communities, and that's what we do. So I, uh, I spend a lot of time in the car um, going to different meetings throughout the district uh, and, and visiting with people. Um, just a lot of windshield time, and, and that's fine and great, and I really enjoy uh, visiting with people throughout all of northwest Missouri. This might be the reason why you told me you listen to my podcast, because you're in the car so much. <laughs> I get a chance to listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, 
uh, audio books in the car while now I travel Now it's, it's pretty flat up there, correct? I mean, because... No. Largely rolling hills. Um, okay. You know, it's, okay. it's the it's the rolling hills of North Missouri. We do have some flat lands in the bottoms on, along okay. the Missouri River. Well, that's and some of the of. tributaries to the Missouri River. But largely, it's uh, the golden green uh, rolling hills of Northwest Missouri. So, uh, do, do you have Kirksville? So, do you have Truman, or does your no. district start and I right go right that. up to it. Uh, Sullivan County uh, joins Adair County. Adair with, uh, is where uh, Kirksville is. And so Sullivan County and Putnam County are the easternmost counties that I represent. So you're one of the few legislators who served in the Missouri General Assembly before term limits. Uh, before the show, you told me you started in the Missouri House in 1991 and you went until 2002. And then you had basically a 12-year gap where you were out of the legislative chaos before you ended up running for the Senate in 2014. I'm interested to hear, like, what got you interested in, in running for office and how that sort of unusual situation where you have more, um, you know, institutional knowledge to some of your colleagues kind of affects how you legislate. You know, I will... Uh be happy to share that with you. When I went to the University of Missouri uh, in Columbia and, uh, you know, graduated there from, you know, I went, I was there from 81 to 85. I participated in student government uh, down there. I was like, I believe I was the first ag representative on the Missouri uh, Student Association government uh, there at the, on the college campus of Mizzou. And at that time, I really thought, you know, I really, uh, and I always planned to go back to our farm uh, there in Northwest Missouri. Um, and, uh, I always thought that if I had the opportunity to give back to my community, uh, I would love to, to run for state representative or in, in that capacity. And, uh, you know, that, that opportunity came around in, in 1991. Uh, our, uh, former state representative at that time was Tim Kelly. He got appointed by Governor Ashcroft to the Department of Agriculture position. So I ran in a special election and uh, was elected in 91 and had the opportunity to to do that. So I really came at it from a public servant standpoint, the opportunity to give back to my community uh, that I felt like I received from the community all these years. And that still is what motivates me. That's what uh, motivated me uh, while I was in the legislature on the House side. And mind you, I was in a minority. Uh, I am a Republican. I was a minority the whole time I was in the House uh, from 91 through 2002. So I can understand the the uh, that aspect of being in the legislature as well, unlike some of my other colleagues who've always been in the uh, political majority uh, here in the Senate. But, you know, that's also what motivated me to come back uh, after a 12-year hiatus, that opportunity to, to run for the Senate and, uh, once again, give back to my broader region then, you know, it, it was with the Senate district being much bigger than a, a state representative district up there. Uh, but that, but that public service is what still motivates me, and, and you know that came from a long line of, you know, watching my parents be involved in the community and being active in various clubs and organizations, and and you know volunteering their time and giving back to the community in that capacity. Uh, so they really instilled in in my uh, sisters and brother that uh, that desire to be involved in the community and and give back to it. And so that's what motivates me and has carried me on to the Senate. 
Now, when you were in the House, I mean, there were obviously certain key issues important to people in your district. Now you're in the Senate, like over 20 years later. I'm curious, A, what are the key issues? B, how have they changed? Uh, I mean, granted, your uh, district is bigger now, but still, I mean, how have the issues changed? You know, um, certainly I was centered in on agricultural issues. In the, in the 90s, we were uh, uh, active on promoting agriculture, and we did a lot of these uh, ethanol plants and developed a lot of ethanol plants and some incentives to develop ethanol plants, which have come to fruition now and have, have, have really turned out to be very positive in the areas that they've, they've gone into. Uh, you know, it really helped many of the local farmers uh, participate in these cooperatives to do these ethanol plants and, and raise their standard of living, uh, which was the desired effect all along to give them more markets and, and the opportunity to, to move up the marketing chain in that regards too. So that was one thing that we dealt with in the, in the 90s. I uh, was very happy and pleased to, to, to engage in that. We still have agricultural uh, issues that we want to visit with all the time and, and, and address. You know, our ag economy is in, is in somewhat of a downturn right now, and, and the, the market prices are very difficult for many farmers out there. And, and hopefully we're not uh, facing a crisis like we've seen in the 80s. And, and, but, uh, but certainly it's, it's a struggle in the agricultural economy right now. So that's, that's some of the things that are a little bit different, some of the same. Um, you know, I remember in uh, 1992, you know, just as I was a, a fresh representative, we were talking about transportation. And, uh, you know, Governor Ashcroft at the time uh, helped move through a, a transportation bill that uh, increased the, uh, the revenue for transportation at that time to try to take care of our roads and bridges at the time. It seems like we are still talking about the need uh, for transportation uh, revenue to, to address some of the needs out there and our infrastructure needs. So I've had the, the great fortune to visit Northwest Missouri a couple of times. As I told you uh, a few weeks ago, um, my wife is a librarian, and Northwest uh, Missouri University—what what is the university called, by the way? I'm blanking on it for a second. Is Northwest it, Missouri State University. Northwest the home Missouri, of the Bearcats. Very good. Uh, multi-time uh, winner of Division II football. Yeah, and I should. They won should, some basketball as well. I, I should know that because they're just so good at sports. But that that institution actually houses a very well known and well respected library conference, which allowed me to spend some time in Maryville, Missouri, which is a a wonderful little town with a great Thai food restaurant. But as I was talking with you before, I think that there are some cities in your district that are are reasonable reasonably prosperous, like Maryville and others that have seen population decline for the last few decades. I, I'm, in, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear what the dichotomy economically is for a lot of your district, because I'm sure agriculture does keep some parts of it uh, prosperous, as well as manufacturing and, and higher education institutions. Others, though, I know have suffered population loss since like the 1950s or before I, I, i'm curious well, the about the 80s particularly i used to drive around when i was your age up there and and i saw the de the the absolute desertion i mean you know farms just emptied it was amazing so what, what's what's kind of the state of the economy in your district you know, uh, it, it certainly is an agricultural-dominated economy uh, up there. We do have pockets of manufacturing, uh, Maryville being a, a pocket of manufacturing, uh, but but really largely uh, agricultural is agricultural base. So the the state of the farm economy certainly has great impact on my communities. So they are looking at 
ways of trying to diversify and, and find other opportunities. It's but it's fairly limited. Uh, you know, I have communities that you know, all my communities have problems. And some of them have problems of decline. And how do you keep up your institutions? How do you keep up your facilities with a declining population and a declining tax base? But I have other communities that have prob- problems of growth. You know, how do you put this infrastructure in with a, with a growing uh, population? How do you keep up with the needs for that? And I can tell you, in, in my view of the world, these umpteen years have been at this, uh, the problems of growth are much easier to work with than the problems of decline. Um, you know, but both of them, you know, have needs and they have desires and, and, and at times, you know, uh, they have to come to the legislature and address some of those needs and desires. So we're going to dive right into issues as is customary when Joe or I do a feature. I'm going to play a story I was working on about the struggle over the low income housing tax credit. As I'll explain in this story, this is an incentive aimed at, Uh, spurring developers to create housing developments for the poor, disabled, and elderly. It's been a controversial incentive for a number of years. The senator has been involved in this issue. I'm going to play the feature and use that as a jumping off point for our discussion. First, here's some background information about the low-income housing tax credit. It's aimed at prodding developers to create housing for the working poor and elderly. When the Missouri Housing Development Commission approves of a project, the tax credits are eventually sold and the proceeds go toward driving down the cost of the development and making rents affordable. It's an incentive that Covenant House Executive Director Joan Dennison sees as crucial for delivering high-quality housing. She says low-income housing tax credits were used to help fund her group's St. Louis County Senior Living Facility that opened in 2016. Many of our residents are the people who support others. They're the school teachers, the, you know, the health care workers, the shop workers, and so forth. And it's difficult for people to amass significant retirement funds, particularly when they're living so long into their 90s and hundreds now. While not disagreeing the tax credit led to some worthwhile developments, critics of the incentive contend it wastes the state's money while providing a lucrative benefit to bankers and developers. One of the people who shares this view is Governor Eric Greitens. And we've had people in the state of Missouri who've been ripping you off and ripping off your families and your kids and your neighbors for years. In December of last year, Greitens and his allies on the Missouri Housing Development Commission put a halt to state low-income housing tax credits. Greitens cites the move as one of his accomplishments, most notably at a recent forum at the Missouri Republican Party's Lincoln Days. In Missouri, we know that what that is. It's a scam. It's a scam. So we zeroed out the program and we put an end to it. Those comments may have showcased a divide among Missouri Republicans. When Greitens uttered those words, he was seated beside two GOP statewide officials who dissented from his tax credit embargo, State Treasurer Eric Schmidt and Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson. Parson, in particular, has been especially vocal in his displeasure. I just think uh, to just act like we're just going to do away with them is not a good plan, and I've said that openly. And, and you know, I, and I know the question becomes is that I'm disagreeing with the governor, but I didn't get elected to, to agree with the governor on everything he does, and I'm already not going to. Parson made those remarks a few days before Greitens admitted he had an extramarital affair before he was governor. Backers of the low-income housing tax credit program have a lot of incentive to see Greitens resign over the matter. Since Parson would become governor if Greitens stepped down, he could rearrange the Missouri Housing Development Commission to revive the program. 
But with Greitens refusing to step aside, the governor can prevent the tax credit from being issued for years, a move worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Jason Crowell, who voted with Greitens to halt the incentive, says it's now up to lawmakers to change the program to the governor's liking. If the General Assembly does not pass reforms, then the decisions that were made in December are going to carry through. Whether that happens this session is an open question. Efforts to overhaul the low-income housing tax credit have faltered for years. House Minority Leader Gail McCann Beatty says the impasse will end up hurting her constituents in Kansas City that need affordable places to live. And I'm not saying that the tax credit program is perfect and doesn't doesn't need some changes, um, but it's absolutely needed until we have something else in place. Lawmakers have until May to act, and if they don't, then Greitens holds all the leverage to keep his tax credit freeze in effect. So, Senator, one of the reasons I wanted to play that for you is you are one of the people that is working on legislation to change how the low-income housing tax credit works. Um, I'm interested to hear not only what your bill does, but kind of how you, you see this this issue that has bedeviled lawmakers, I think, for almost 10 years now. Um, even, even before you came into the Senate, your predecessor, Senator Brad Lager, was a major critic of this program, and I know he wasn't the only person. Uh, what's kind of your view of this situation, and how are you kind of dealing, it, dealing with it from a legislative point of view? You bet. You know, when we uh, saw that the uh, the uh, Missouri Housing Development Commission did not issue any credits this year, we did put forth a bill right away. Really, the intent was to begin the discussion on this. We it was it was just a a, a cap on the tax credits on the low income housing is where we started off, but really is it's intended to work with the various parties to try to find some some uh, areas of of agreement where we can make some changes, some structural changes, make some reforms that would be accepting to to folks to try to get this program jump started again and get it started moving forward to address those those uh, communities that you that you mentioned in the uh, in the uh, piece. You know the the elderly, the low income, and the uh, the disabled communities. Uh, I think we need to have that discussion. You know, a large part of it is budgetary too, and how much money, how many, how much of our state resources do we want to expend on that program? Um, you know, being that I sit on the appropriations committee too, you know, that certainly is a lot of needs out there that need to be taken into account every year. And um, you know, these tax credits tend to be funded first and foremost before any other. Uh, program out there, and and we never pit them, or we never we never compare them to the other needs in the state of Missouri, um, and so this is part of part of my effort to get the program going again, but also make that comparison as to other programs and and what we really want to, uh, and at what level do we want to engage in that program? I mean, one of the basics. I mean, as you and Jason know, is that these credits are issued every year, but then. They're redeemed over a period of many years, so That's the right. impact on the state budget could be five, even ten years down the road. Um, so there's so there's been talk about lowering the ceiling, this and that. Without getting too much in the weeds, what do you think might be a mutually acceptable ceiling annually on how much of these tax credits would be offered? Or do you think that you guys are going to have to go along with the governor and not have any for a few years? 
Well, like I say, I'm hoping that that wouldn't be the case. That's why I introduced the bill to be able to, to, to start the conversation. I introduced the bill at $50 million as a cap, which is very low. That's a starting point. That's, yeah, that's really about just, a third of what it was. Yeah, correct? yeah, and, and I don't intend, to, intend for us to stay there. But I do want to visit with the, the various parties engaged in this in these type of programs, work with them, work with the uh, Missouri Housing Development Commission, uh, work with the governor's office to see if we can find an area of compromise of an area that we can make some reforms that bring some more efficiency into these tax credits so that the uh, state sees a greater return on a dollar. You know, right now we, we've had two state auditors that uh, have reported that uh, we only get 41 cents on the dollar uh, return on these on these programs out there. And so there's certainly a great desire to see a greater return on, the, on our investment there um, and, and to try to drive some efficiencies into the program. You know, have you talked with the governor about what he would want to see changed in the program? I read the Tax Credit Commission report where it suggested maybe turning the, the low-income housing tax credit program into a, basically a forgivable loan program. But I, I would have to imagine that that's not going to be well-received by everybody because sure. I know from talking with legislators over the years that both Democrats and Republicans strongly support this program for various reasons. What what type of things are you hearing that the governor wants to change that would be enough for him to effectively lift the embargo that I was talking about earlier? You know, we're beginning to have the discussion in the Senate, you know, first, and, and, and it's really where I want to be. Uh, let's see what the Senate wants to put forth as changes uh, to this program, and, and then I would hope to engage the governor to, to see what uh, he would want to uh, see in this program as well uh, and what he'd be willing to accept and, and to get the program up and going again. But I really kind of wanted to define you know what and have a real open debate on this and see what is the senate's position you know the, and then and then we would engage the the executive branch to see what uh, what they would wish on it we've had some ancillary discussions but not any real uh, you know you know right to the bone type of discussions on this yet but that will come in time I've been monitoring the senate from afar in St. Louis and one thing that I noticed a couple of weeks ago is that some of your Republican colleagues were were very upset with the move to withdraw three MHDC nominees from their posts. Now, as I pointed out in an article, whether they were withdrawn or resigned or not was was basically irrelevant to whether tax credits get issued again, because regardless, the MHDC really doesn't have a quorum now unless the governor attends meetings, which he probably won't. And he could probably just appoint three more people after the session that are going to do what he wants. But it's clearly struck a nerve with, with some colleagues, including Senator Rob Schopp of St. Joseph. I'm going to play a clip right now of him talking about not only the MHDC situation, but also the Board of Education uh, commissioner nominee situation as well. And we'll use that again as a jumping off point. The bottom line of it is, is the governor always wins. He always eventually wins. He'll replace everybody on these boards and commissions eventually. He'll get his way. There won't be any more low-income tax credits. There'll be a new uh, commissioner of education. They'll, all the boards will eventually be stacked with his people. But we're the Senate are saying, you know, if we see you 
railroading the process. We're going to put a stop to it. And we'll, we'll win an occasional battle like we did today. We're, we know we're not going to win the ultimate war. Uh, so without getting into the, you know, real weeds about this particular situation, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of senators on both sides are not happy with the way the governor has used some of these boards and commissions like the MHDC to accomplish major policy goals like, you know, stopping the low-income housing tax credits or appointing a, a, a new education commissioner. As a member of the Senate, what's kind of your your view of how the governor is navigating that type of thing and also how your colleagues are, are reacting to it? You know, certainly there is a lot of um, consternation, let's say, about some of these uh, appointments. And, and, and typically there always is some consternation about uh, uh, gubernatorial appointments. Certainly there was some with uh, Governor Nixon as well and governors before him. Um, you know, it is the purview of the Senate to advise and consent. And I think the Senate turned down the uh, Missouri Housing Development Commissioners uh, and, and expressed that 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 uh, that aspect that we exercise in giving our advice and consent, we, we showed that uh, as a body, as a whole, that we were not happy with that particular action there, and we, and, and we turned back as those, uh, those commissioners that had been appointed. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that's, that is well within the purview and the rights of the Senate to exercise that authority, and, uh, and many of us felt strongly about that. And and although I had a constituent that was one of those commissioners being nominated and, and really was very well qualified, the will of the body won out, and, and, uh, and that's fine. And, and uh, that is the, the power of the Senate. But it's pretty clear, though, again, regardless of how that particular nominee situation ended up, that the governor holds all the leverage here. And until the legislature acts to the way that he wants— um, he can prevent the low-income housing tax credit from being issued until he leaves office. Do you think that your colleagues, especially the ones that may not uh, be instantly amenable to legislation that you sponsored, realize that and are willing to come to the table to make sure uh, the embargo gets lifted? Well, I sure hope so. I hope that we can find some room for to, for discussion and negotiation and and compromise to, to, to find a place where we can move forth on these programs because I think they are needed in in a state you know again at what level do we fund those programs that's a, an issue of debate and I, I'm happy to lead that to part of this discussion as well because uh, we've got a lot of needs in the state of Missouri you know we've got education we've got uh, the elderly uh, you know in-home uh, care for the elderly uh, and the disabled uh, we took some cuts last year and we'd like many of us would like to see some of those cuts restored um, you know uh, higher education took cut many folks would like to see them some of those uh, cuts restored and and really interested in having this discussion moving forth on this bill trying to find consensus and uh, hopefully that my colleagues will see the need to to, to come around to this issue now, in your far-flung district, are there uh, a lot of uh, developments that have used the low-income housing tax credits? I mean, just kind of your own experience. What have you seen in your district, how it's helped or not? Um, and then the same for um, some of the programs, especially the ones for in-home 
uh, care for the elderly and disabled that got cut last year. I'm just interested what sort of impact you're hearing from your constituents. Well, certainly we have some, uh, you know, of those low-income housing projects uh, throughout my district, kind of a smattering, a sprinkling, you know, uh, throughout the the, uh, the communities that, that, that I represent, uh, you know, both for the developmentally disabled or the dis- disabled community, as well as uh, elderly community for the most part. Are uh, they popular? Yeah, I think they're, you know, I think people are utilizing those uh, facilities. I, you know, my, my area is not one of the wealthier areas of the state either. I mean, when you look at uh, rural Missouri, there's a, there, there's a, a sizable amount of uh, income challenge folks up my way as well. And so, uh, yeah, you bet these, these, uh, these facilities are uh, popular and they're utilized uh, to a great extent. And, and so I think there is a desire to have... Uh, more there, especially on the elderly side. Especially, you see more on the, on the elderly side in my senatorial district, and um, and so we're hoping to move forward that. But I will tell you on the on the cuts to the uh, uh, in home care, the Medicaid folks in in nursing homes. I really do have some nursing homes that I am convinced are struggling right now, and and they provide a service uh, to these folks. Many of their uh, clients that they have in their homes. You know, are on the Medicaid rolls. Uh, you know, something to the effect of maybe 70% in many of my f- facilities, not for profit as well as for profit facilities, have a high percentage of Medicaid um, clients in their community in their facilities. And I think they're struggling. I think that our reimbursement uh, for that is just very low right now, and I worry that they will be able to continue. Uh, Keeping as many Medicaid beds in their in their facility, and keeping the facilities open, and so I really have a desire to to find the resources to try to fill some of that hole and and, and to address their needs and their concerns. Well, that's a good segue to our next topic, uh, the state budget. On that particular issue, since you are on the Senate Appropriations Committee, is there much of an effort from your colleagues, your colleagues in the House? Budget Committee or the governor to find some sort of permanent solution to the in-home care cuts that went into effect last year? Or is it pretty much the status quo as of now from what you've seen in the budget? No, I think, uh, you know, uh, we discussed even last fall, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a group of senators and representatives working on a on a possible solution to that. Uh, you know, typically, uh, centering around the circuit breaker uh, uh, idea out there and um, and dealing with that that was a concept that was in the uh, that the house kind of put forth last session and that the Senate you know went with this sweeping of funds idea to uh, fill that whole uh, that budgetary hole instead uh, which the governor declined and and uh, and uh, then kept the uh, the cuts in place. So that idea is back. Senator Cunningham on the House side, uh, I think it's uh, Representative uh, uh, the, the budget chairman on the on the House side is working on it. Senator Cunningham on the Senate side uh, has been very involved in that debate, and I think that'll be back. That's one idea. Uh, there are also some other ideas, you know, to, to try to find resources to. Uh, to address some of those needs that, that I mentioned. One that I'm putting forth is, uh, again, kind of the whole discussion on what do we, how do we want to appropriately uh, fund and finance uh, our historic preservation housing tax credits out there. Um, you know, I remember 
that uh, historic preservation tax credit bill going through the House when I was a member of the House. Matter of fact, I was on the conference committee uh, when that uh, that bill and that program came forth. And I recall that it had somewhere between $15 million and a $20 million fiscal note. And that is a fine level for us to engage in, and participate in that, uh, that effort to re- invigorate and re, uh, redevelop some of our areas around the state and to preserve some of these historic facilities. But when it became a $200 million program and then scaled back to $140 million program, you know, I could not imagine that it had grown that big. And I think it's time to have the discussion. What do we think is an appropriate level, um, especially taking into consideration all these other needs at the state, what is the appropriate level that we want to put forth in that program? I personally think $140 million is way too much money uh, when we have these other needs. I want to see that scaled back to a reasonable level. We are millions and millions, like three times as big as most state tax credit programs dealing with historic preservation. You know, we really need to take a review of that and, and to compare it to the other needs in the state of Missouri and determine what we think is the proper place for Missouri to be engaged in that effort. Um, now, do you see, I mean, in your older communities, I mean, are they using these credits? I mean, it, we're talking about the historic tax credits. I mean, one of the claims is that they then do generate growth. I was in Washington, Missouri a few weeks ago, for example, where they have been used extensively. This is one of the outer uh, parts of the St. Louis area. And um, to renovate a lot of older buildings along the Missouri Riverfront. I'm just interested in what what you're seeing in your district, or do you think they've kind of outlived their usefulness? Well, we've seen a few communities that have engaged with them and have done a fine job of, of uh, renovating some of their downtown areas with it. And uh, it's, it's a smattering uh, throughout my my uh, 12th Senatorial District. Uh, and that's why I don't want to do away with them, but I do want to scale them back. You know, because I, I just, you know, I just think... It is a the, the largesse from the state of Missouri uh, can't be sustained when you put them up, up up against the equation of you know continuing this program at the present level of 140 million dollars a year as compared to the need to 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 address the elderly in nursing homes and the elderly in, in home care and the developmentally uh, disabled community out there that needs uh, housing and, and needs uh, needs there as, as well, as well as education needs, you know, across the state. And and, and in my mind, that $140 million level just doesn't equate to the to what we need in the state of Missouri. That's why I think we it's timely to have the discussion as to what is the appropriate level for that particular program. But, I mean, there's a backdrop to all this. The governor wants more tax cuts. I mean, I just saw during during the olympics last night one of his one of this supportive group for him ran this ad with that's expensive time on nbc uh promoting his uh proposed tax cuts uh, i mean what do you i mean comparing what you see as the needs with the with with the concerns about restricting some of these tax credit programs to the governor wanting to uh make more tax cuts i'm just interested in your thoughts about how that's going to play out. 
You know, I think we need to be very careful about that, too. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm as in favor of tax cuts and, and giving people their money back as, as the next person, but I think we also expect a certain level of, of service from the state of Missouri. Uh, and, and, you know, that is something that we want to take into consideration. I'm over on the western side of the state where we watch Kansas go through some uh, drastic tax cuts in their state, and then they struggle with that, with what they've they've done in the state of Kansas and and, and the difficulties that they've had, where they've even raided their pension plans and their and their highway funds to to keep the government going. I would hate to see the state of Missouri get in such a situation as Kansas. So that's why many of the uh, senators are very cautious about this. Certainly want to try to make it uh, revenue neutral should we make any tax cuts that uh, that we deliver out there. And, and so I think we'll be very cautious as we uh, look at some of these comprehensive tax cut bills that are uh, put forth by senators like Senator Caney, Senator Eigel, Senator Onder, and, and the governor's proposal as well. Uh, before we delve into to the broader feel of the legislature, one of the other things the governor proposed in his budget were pretty substantial cuts to higher education institutions. I know that those are decisions that probably affect your district quite a bit, especially with Northwest Missouri State. Uh, I know it's also affected the UM system quite a bit, too. I- I've also heard from some Republicans that they don't feel like those cuts need to be sustained and they can rearrange the budget to where, you know, the cuts can be avoided. I know it's pretty early. It's February, and I'm not sure that the budget is going to be finalized until May. But what are you hearing from your colleagues on on that front when it comes to higher education? You bet. I think a lot of us have seen higher education cut through the the, uh, past number of years um, and continue to be cut. It's an area that you can go to, I guess, at least People feel like that that, that that those resources to for our higher education can come from other sources. But I tell you what, many of us, and, and I've been saying this since uh, last spring, you know, I would consider it a win if we could just not cut higher education. And so with the governor's recommendations uh, out there, that that's, that's nice, and the governor's recommendations are fine. But, you know, it, it really is the legislature that puts together the budget. It's the General Assembly that uh, develops the budget, and I think many of us would like to see uh, you know higher education held held harmless as much as possible whether we can achieve that goal or not will yet to be seen but i think there is a, a strong motivation from many uh, legislators to try to uh, you know try to make sure that higher education is held harmless so i want to kind of ask about the the governor's relationship with the senate and the legislature even before he uh, acknowledged that he had an extramarital affair before he was governor his relationship with the legislature was 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 I w- what I would consider shaky on some issues. Uh, last year, testy, he, testy, I, I, whatever adjective that you want to use. In addition to kind of the skirmishes over his nominees to boards and commissions, uh, there was an instance last year where he criticized Republican senators by name because they they didn't vote down a pay increase. He's also been critical that the legislature didn't pass more things during last year's legislative session. And he's kind of used this, you know, career politician motif to try and contrast himself against elected officials who have been around for for many years. So that's kind of the overall backdrop that, that occurred before January 11th, 2018. 
I'm interested to hear like what both you and the rest of your colleagues in the Senate, how, how you how you're you're dealing with this governor. And, and I ask because you're in the minority for a long time. And this should be like a once in a lifetime opportunity for Republicans to enact just sweeping policy changes that they couldn't even get done when Matt Blunt was governor. But I'm seeing like a lot of friction between the executive and legislative branches, a lot of it coming from the governor, but also some some upsetness from your colleagues over policy disagreements. How is this affecting things? You know, I don't see it. I mean, the legislature seems, and particularly the Senate, seems to be moving forward uh, as smoothly, much more smoothly than than what we did last year. And, uh, you know, I think the legislature, and particularly the Senate, is just we're going to continue to just do our duty, do our task, continue on with the bills that we want to to pass. You know, last year, you know, we did work with the governor uh, very effectively. We passed a lot of tort reform. Last year, we passed some labor reform that people had been desiring for some time. So we get we did get a lot of things that uh, the Republican rank and file had been desiring for a long time. So we were very successful in in moving forth and working with the governor on that. Yes, there's some personality conflicts out there, but I don't see that as really stymieing or stifling the work that we in the Senate needs to get done, and I'm happy to be moving forward on on some of these issues and trying to address them as best we can. And uh, one more question before we let you go back to the Senate uh, work. Um, you you are up for re-election this year. Um, are you ready to announce on this show that you'll be running for a second term to represent your enormous Senate district? Well, I've announced it a number of times other places, but I'll, I'm happy to announce it on this show as well to once again put myself forward as a uh, public servant to the people of the 12th Senatorial District. I'm happy to, uh, if they allow me the opportunity to, to serve them once again for another four years. Now, what's the political climate in your district? Um, I mean, our, I know it went heavily for Trump in 2016, very Republican. That's how Greitens yeah. ended up in office uh, and some other Republicans. Uh, do you have a sense if that's still the case or if people are irritated about some uh, policy changes or whatever? I'm just interested in your, in your uh, take on it. it. My area is very conservative, and so uh, we, we're continuing on in, uh, in that regards. I mean, I see that. You know, I had uh, one of my counties was the top uh, vote getter for Trump. Uh, in the election, and as a matter of fact, I had some uh, in it was Mercer County, and people came in and uh, had some news reports about the, that being the most uh, most Trump friendly county uh, in the nation, and so um, it is very strongly, very conservatively, very conservative, uh, strong supporters for uh, President Trump. I I see that continuing on, uh, but very agricultural as well, and so we we we. A little bit troubled, a little bit worried about the ag economy right now, and and that uh, tends to dominate some of the coffee shop conversation that we have out there. Well, we'll see how Trump fares in November. It's often kind of a difficult thing to say, see if the February environment will transfer months ahead of time. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on this show. It is always really important for me and Joe personally to make sure people that represent rural Missouri are able to tell their story and talk about how their issues are. Um, So for all of our stories, STL Public Radio, 
org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. I'm not really sure if you're on Twitter, but is there any way for people to get a hold of you either on the internet or on the phone or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Uh, I, I do have a Facebook page. Uh, I can't tell you what that address may be, but I, I do have a, a, a Senate Facebook page. Uh, and then, of course, uh, my Senate address and, and Senate email would be a way to contact me. Very good. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Okay.